1: Hi and welcome to the Natural Birth Podcast, the podcast that is bringing embodied birth wisdom from women from all over the world, sharing their natural birth stories. Don't forget to subscribe and download so that you can always have access to these empowering and positive natural birth stories. Hi, my name is Anna, also known as the Spiritual Midwife, and I am the Natural Birth Podcast host. I'm a midwife and a childbirth educator and I work with women worldwide assisting them in having an empowering and natural birth experience and to truly claim their birth as a rite of passage. I offer online one-on-one sessions, packages and online courses for the conscious mamas who don't want to leave their birth up to chance. If you want to know more about me and what I do in the world, Then please visit me at thenaturalbirthcourse.com or connect with me on Instagram as the underscore spiritual underscore midwife. Now, if you love this podcast, then please consider taking a moment right now and leave a review. They mean the world to me and is also your way of helping me reach more women around the world with these natural and empowering birth stories. Together We are changing the birth narrative one birth story at a time. Today on the Natural Birth Podcast, we have Caroline. Caroline is a mama of two from Scotland and a beautiful client of mine. Her first birth was a traumatic experience for her which when she fell pregnant again she reached out to me to heal and work through which I am so grateful that she did. When she emailed me about her positive and natural home birth with her second on Christmas Eve I was so delighted and couldn't wait to hear her story. So here it is. Caroline's redemptive home birth which started out similar to her first with seemingly slow progress in quotation marks, but then she opened from three centimeters to birthing her baby within less than two hours. Which again, as so often on this podcast, tells you that cervical checks really can't tell us when you'll birth your baby. If you've had a previous traumatic birth experience, or you feel that you have fears or anxieties about the mystery of your upcoming birth, or how to navigate the hospital system, then please feel free to reach out to me. I offer one-off sessions, birth trauma healing sessions, as well as packages for you to choose from and feel into, which resonates with you. It's essential to face your fears before birth so that they don't surface at your birth altar. Find out more via the link in the show notes. Hi Caroline and welcome to the Natural
0: Birth Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Fresh, had some outdoor time. So yeah, feeling good to share everything. It's nice to see you again after the work we did together. Yeah, I was just going to say
1: it's so beautiful to see you again, you're glowing and I can't wait to hear about your beautiful, redemptive home birth that you've had on Christmas Eve not long ago. And so I'm really excited to hear your story. Obviously, yes, we work together throughout this pregnancy of yours. And um, before we dive on into this beautiful birth story that you're about to share, we're going to touch upon obviously your first pregnancy and birth and the process you did to heal what was a traumatic event for you and a little bit about your process and questions around that event so with no further ado please take us back to falling pregnant with your first and your journey through pregnancy birth and healing that after
0: yeah of course i'm happy to so i got pregnant the first time in 2020 so, like many other women, we were in the mid of the COVID crisis and the first lockdowns that hit the world, and it was such an intense time. But we were me and my partner were so excited about our first pregnancy. We got pregnant after three months, so it was it's fairly swift for my age. I think there's a lot of scare stories out there about women trying for a baby when they're older, and I just. You know, I know so many stories of you know myself and friends where that's not the case. The stats aren't actually <laughs> aren't actually the case. Um, and you know, we were we were so happy that it happened quite quite swiftly for us. Um, for anyone
1: listening, what is your age? Can so um,
0: <laughs> when I fell pregnant, I was thirty-seven the first mm. time, thirty-nine now. Um, and so yeah, if you if you were to Google the stats, I think it says oh you you know you have to allow up to a year and um yeah I just think there's there's a lot of negative scare stories out there and you just have to do what's right for you. Mm. Um, And yeah so we got pregnant in the spring of 2020. Um, My pregnancy was just so smooth and I'd always wanted to experience it actually Um, and so I was so excited to, to have that time just to learn about what what your body does in pregnancy you know, start to feel this tiny human growing inside you. And I was just fascinated by the process. I always have been since I was little. Um, And yeah, even though we were in this crazy intense time of of COVID, actually, in some ways, that was a blessing because me and my partner just had so much us time. We had so much outdoor time. We obviously didn't have any children yet. So we had, (laughs) looking back now, we had the luxury of just, you know, still having all of our hobbies and, um just being able to to do what we wanted to do in our own time without any pressure of traveling or seeing people or going to work. We were both working from home. Um, yeah, so the pregnancy went super, super well up until, you know, the 40th week. I just felt amazing right until the end. And I had stories in my head of women that said, you know, it's, it's really hard those last few weeks, but I just didn't feel that at all. I just felt so healthy. Um, I don't think... my I don't think I was that big, so I I guess that played a role. And um, I was really fit at the time; I'd been doing a lot of trail running. I used to do a lot of endurance sports, so I'd just come off the back of um, you know big fifty-mile, hundred-mile races. So I was really fit at the time, and I I wonder if that played a part in having such a smooth pregnancy. Mm. So yeah, going into the birth, I I think it was forty plus one. I lost my mucus plug at home, and it was evening we were just about to go to bed and looking back now i just did all the things that you hear now not to do i did them all i didn't rest <laughs> i was so excited and i had these looking back again i had fixed expectations in my mind of you know having a fairly swift labor because that's what happened with my mother um you know with me she had like a 3 hour labor so i was thinking you know It must be hereditary. I I was trying to manifest positive expectations anyway, but I just think they were too fixed. I wasn't being kind of broad enough in my view of of how labor could pan out. And so that first night when I lost the plug, I also didn't really have an awareness of how long it could take for, you know, proper contractions or surges to start after Mm. that. And I did have some kind of period cramps that first night. And we went to bed and I really could have slept all night, probably with the, you know, how how light the cramps were. But I only slept about two hours. I was just so excited and I was absolutely convinced I was about to go into proper labour because I had a few cramps. And so going on from there, the next morning I did, they did intensify a little bit. And basically to kind of summarise, throughout the next three days, I had fairly um, constant surges. And they would ramp up in the evening. So I guess it's what they call prodromal labour. They would ramp up in the evening and they were at least every 10 minutes all night long for three nights, um, as close together as four minutes when they really got intense during in the middle of each night. But then in the daytime, they would tail off to maybe 15 minutes, sometimes half an hour, but they never completely went away. Mm. Uh, And I just, you know, every day that you're going through that, you think, oh, this must be it because I've never been through it before. And I really... I'd done so much birth prep, you know, I'd done so much hypnobirthing, we'd done courses, we'd read loads of books, um, lots of meditations, relaxations, but I just, I just think my idea of what my labour was going to be like was too fixed and I didn't for one second expect such a long labour and um, I I didn't actually get into active labour until the third day, going into the fourth day really. Um, So on the third day, I, I, I was, me and my partner got a bit kind of freaked out because I couldn't feel the baby move and I hadn't felt movement for a couple of hours. And we sat down and we had, you know, I had like a, a sparkling drink and we waited another hour and I still didn't feel anything. And I think, you know, for those three nights, I should have said I didn't sleep either. So I had two hours sleep the Wednesday night, the first night after losing the plug. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I didn't have one, one hour of sleep. I just didn't, I, I actually couldn't rest because the, the surges were so constant through the night. But I think looking back, I could have rested in the day a bit more. And I just didn't know when labour was going to fully kick off. And I kept expecting it was right around the corner. But I really should have rested one of those days. And so by the third day, um, when we lost the confidence of feeling baby move i really lost all confidence in the process i lost trust mm. in myself i think a little bit by that point that it was all going to happen naturally um and we were we had been planning a home birth and we were still <laughs> allowed to do that um by the you know covid rules in our in our area in scotland at that time this was in just outside edinburgh um so we had been planning just to call the midwives when you know when i was uh 3 three surges in every ten, they said, and they would come out and we had our home birth pool, you know, and everything kind of planned and set up. But by that third day, when we couldn't feel the movements, we thought we just want to go in and get a check in the hospital because obviously if you don't feel movements, you you do seek reassurance for that, especially being a first time mama at that mm-hmm. time. So we went into hospital, the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, and they gave me a check. Um, and they sent us one centimetre, which <laughs> devastated me so it's kind of all these traps that you can easily fall into as a first-time mama of saying of not previously wanting a check but then giving in to having one and then being really disappointed by the news and just being really disappointed by how everything was panning out because I'd had such a fixed view to begin with. And so at that time, being one centimeter, they don't want to admit you to hospital. I think by that point, I would have been happy just to be admitted. If I'd been more than four centimeters, they've they've actually got a really wonderful birth center attached to the hospital. I probably would have just said, for reassurance and to have some, you know, people around that know what they're doing and just have some company as well as my partner, um, because we'd been on our own in COVID times. We hadn't. We we'd been told we weren't allowed any other birth support in the house apart from the midwives which you know who would only come out right at the end of the process and so you know I I really wanted a doula but I was told I couldn't have one in retrospect I wish I'd just broken the rules because I've heard about people doing that (laughs) Mm. um since then and you know what are they going to do really you know they're probably not going to take us to court and (laughs) charge us for it um and that would have been really supportive at the time just to give Mm. us some reassurance um but yeah, I think if I'd been more than one centimetre, I probably would have wanted to go to the birth centre just for a little bit of support. But as it was, we went home. They did reassure us um, that things should kick off, that it was happening. It's just sometimes, you know, the early labour stage can take a long time, especially if you're a first-time mum. And I think that was that was morning on the, on the third, sorry, on the fourth day. Sorry, that was morning on the third day and we we kept going at home and I the surges did pick up again after that journey home when we were back in our kind of safe space and they really ramped up and that afternoon um I did reach three and ten and the midwives came out late afternoon and just to summarize how it all ended um I did end up getting into the birth pool I, I consented to another check at which time I was seven centimeters and you know by that point feeling really reassured it was all happening so we did get our kind of home birth pool experience I had three hours in the birth pool but unfortunately the midwives that that were there at the time they said from the sounds I was making they thought I was ready to push I don't think I was ready to push at all because they told me to start trying to push I didn't feel any sensations but I started trying and they were kind of coaching me into different positions and things and yeah, you have to remember that I'd had three nights, no sleep whatsoever. So by this point, I was exhausted and really struggling to hold my body weight up. And just the um, effort to push when I I really don't think I was at that stage yet was just too much. And they said, OK, I think you're getting too exhausted. Can you get out the pool and we'll check you again if that's OK? So I just I said to you, yes to that. But I was eight centimetres when they checked me. I think I was going through transition. Mm-hmm. They then said... This is really slow progress. You've been in the pool, I think, for four hours by that point, and you've only made it to one centimetre. So they planted <laughs> lots of negative seeds that it wasn't happening for me and that my body just wasn't working in the way it should be. And they said, you know, we really need you to make a decision. You either need to go to hospital or consent to having your waters broken here. Um, and so, yeah, after lots of deliberating, we consented to go going to hospital because I didn't want my waters broken. They said it would get even more difficult. And by the time I'd got out of the pool at home, um, everything just felt like unbelievably hard. And I just felt like I was in agony. I didn't have the safe space of the water. I was being taken out of that kind of comfortable home space by the idea of going to hospital. And so we did. We transferred to hospital um, and I was in such a bad place mentally by that point that when they checked me in hospital, I was five centimetres. And I just want to share that story because I think I did not have any awareness before going into that labour experience mm. that you can go the opposite direction when you're already eight centimetres. I kind of thought when you're in established labour, it's you know very difficult for anything to slow that. But in my case, I felt so much anxiety and, and fear in the ambulance and the Wade Hospital um, because not just was I out of my home space, I didn't have my partner with me. He had to take our car separately. Yeah. I didn't have anyone able to do hip compressions, which were the only thing getting me through the pain of the surges. Um And, yeah, and obviously that <laughs> that story really shows and and what happened to my body when I arrived,
1: yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's definitely personal of wisdom for anyone listening. um you know your whole story, and obviously, we've worked with this and, and talked about this that. Essentially throughout, you weren't supported in the way that you actually really needed to let go. Because in order for active labor to really establish, you need that separation to happen from your mind and going to your primal birthing body. And there needs to be safety and and feeling safe. And going through all those days just with your partner, probably, as you said, like you probably needed a doula or someone to hold that space for you so that you could feel like you could let go. Mm-hmm. And maybe that going into hospital, that reassurance of knowing your baby was fine and you know it's probably gone, did start it. But then again, mm-hmm. someone came into your house, those midwives that didn't really hold that physiological space and didn't really allow you to take your time. Mm-hmm. You yeah. didn't really hold a space where you didn't feel on a clock the time limit and needed mm-hmm. to perform in a sense and that you weren't doing the right thing and so
0: on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um if I was to think about kind of one pearl of wisdom to sum up that experience, you know, I think it it would be rest and sleep as much as humanly possible in your early labor and just don't have any fixed expectations about the timeline that your labour is going to unfold in because it it just could be anything. Um and I think for any birth workers or, or midwives out there, just don't try and unless it's absolutely essential, try not to to give women a decision to make when they're going through a transition because yeah. that was a really hard place to be in. And I felt like I couldn't make it at the time. Yeah. And um looking back, it was just the absolute worst moment to give me a decision to make. And I would have liked just a couple more hours just to see how things worked out in the pool.
1: Yeah. But yeah. yeah instead of giving you that ultimatum when you are in that very vulnerable state to mm. instead just love you and support you and say you are doing it you've opened this much mm-hmm. and coach you through that
0: instead you totally. that space and time yeah absolutely that that just would have been gold dust I think at that time and mm. and just to kind of finish that story when we were in hospital I did consent to an epidural because I was in such a bad place and mm. just felt like there was nothing I could do Um, to take this pain away anymore I wasn't with the people that I needed to be with and my partner did make it in eventually but there was a long stretch of time when I was kind of on my own just trying to work through this so I said yes to an epidural my son was born um, midday that that fourth day Um, and everything was okay I I felt completely um, overwhelmed when he was born I felt like I didn't you know as you would imagine (laughs) I didn't really ha- have the environment I wanted to meet my son for the first time and I you know I had a cannula in my hand I was really frustrated with not being able to hold him properly and like hospital you know like any hospital environment they're on a they're on a timeline and they want to get you out of the you know your your private labour room and move mm-hmm. you to the ward and I just felt on such a timeline with you know okay you have your air of skin to the skin and that's it to the minute, you know. Um, but unfortunately, that first night when we were on the ward together, me and my son, they were doing observations on him, and they found uh, that his breathing rate was was too high by their standards, by their protocols. Um, and they ended up taking him to the neonatal intensive care unit for. It ended up being the best part of a week, um, and that was in a different floor from me in the hospital, and we weren't allowed to to be together. Although I was obviously going up to visit him all the time, and. I made the case to breastfeed him as much as I possibly could instead of expressing and bottle feeding. So grateful for that, but it was—it ended up being even more traumatic than the birth experience. I think being being separated from him for the best part of a week uh, without the skin to skin we would have had at home, um, and that, yeah, you, you, you know, like so many women, that just completely affects your postpartum experience as well. And you know, for someone that's already prone to anxiety it just absolutely mushroomed after that time and i became a really anxious mum for the first the first good 8 months i would say um so it's just interesting to reflect on how anxiety from birth um and a situation like you know your son being suspected of having sexist, how that can infiltrate your postpartum period in so many ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect quite insidious ways i think yeah um and and you know the the other learning for me that i really wasn't aware of and i think a lot of women especially first-time mamas aren't aware of is that um the uh, hospital protocols for uh, the postnatal period so if you do have a hospital birth or even a home birth you know um you're if you're under hospital protocols the midwives will be doing checks on that baby and they will be looking for a higher respiratory rate, and they'll be looking for any, any vague signs of an infection like sepsis or meningitis. And I would love to know the research for how many babies actually have these, you know, really, um, really terrible infections when so many are treated as if they have them. So there's so many, So obviously, hospitals don't want a neonatal death in their hands. So they treat so many so many babies for having these infections even if they have the slightest sign of an increased respiratory rate post 24 hours um, after birth and that's what happened to me with Sora and my son um and I requested my medical notes to process that whole experience afterwards and I was told I actually had a conversation with the midwives as well and I was told that there was never any evidence that he had sepsis and so I look back and I think you know I my personal opinion is he was in neonatal for no reason I don't think he needed to be there I think he was just we'd had a really long difficult labor together you know he came out really fast at the end in a couple of pushes I think he was just adjusting to the world outside Mm. we'll never really know but there was no no evidence of sepsis
1: yeah I do think that what you're sharing is really important because it comes down to how are modern day maternity culture views birth but also life and death Mm -hmm. and everything in both pregnancy birth and the postpartum concerning baby here right um they look at the same so they want to minimize the ultimate real risk of death yeah right but there's no consideration of what you just shared, right? The impact both on a baby being separated, being kept away from its mother and all that that entails, but also for you and your bonding and your healing, obviously, and, and just both of you, you know, it it reminds me just of the same what's happening to the, the induction epidemic, which is yeah. about reducing the absolute risk of stillbirth from like, you know, maybe two in 1,000 babies, you know, or from four in uh, 1,000 babies to two in 1,000 yeah. babies. Like that's what we're talking about, that absolute risk. And of course, no one wants a baby to die, whether it is in utero or outside. But what are the consequences of this over-medicalization that is so risk adverse, That's so that can allow absolutely anything else Mm -hmm. to happen to mother and baby to to minimize that absolute risk Mm -hmm. and I think what we're actually seeing more and more is that it's not worth it it's not worth the trauma for mother and baby that yeah both you and your son had to endure that you you know can say after talking to your midwife and also looking at your notes and I mean I did too as we worked together look through your notes and there is no sign that actually in the end there was no test showing that there was anything wrong with your baby no just had a higher respiratory rate and Mm -hmm. what would have happened if they just closely monitored instead for 24 hours him on your chest totally care breastfeeding just being with you you know
0: absolutely yeah I, I wrote that into my birth plan this time around. I said I want kangaroo care if my baby has an infection, and Ooh. we'll come on to that. But actually, we do have a similar story this time, and um, I can't wait
1: to hear it. So let's dive on into that. I just, but it is mm-hmm. beautiful to have you on, seeing as we work together and seeing as there is this really beautiful purse of wisdom that you did gain from this really traumatic experience, then that really informed this birth, didn't it? So tell us about. Falling pregnant again and your thought patterns about, you know, what you needed to do to come to a place where you felt confident in having a home birth again and yeah, having this birth.
0: Yeah, you do. You learn about the world, don't you, from things not going right and you learn more about yourself. <laughs> so we we always wanted two babies quite close together. And especially with my age, we kind of we wanted just to kind of crack on and, and have two little ones. Um. I, I was planning to to try and get pregnant kind of with an 18-month gap. But as it was, I was still breastfeeding my son um, when, and my period hadn't come back, I think, for over a year. So obviously, you don't have the luxury of just choosing exactly when you can get pregnant the second time round. So I was waiting for my cycles just to return and just try and go with that and go with the flow of that. And we ended up getting pregnant. I think it took us four months this time. Um, and this was at age well 30, uh, I would have been 38 at the time just happened in the fourth month and that that just felt good. I was so happy and nervous as well you know just being open about it nervous about it. what one child is is such a huge change for your life how how is it going to be you know being pregnant with with a little toddler in tow and and what is our life going to be like with two? We also made a move up to the Highlands of Scotland from Edinburgh, from the city, um, in the time uh, before that pregnancy. Actually, when my first son was was six months old, and you know, even though I had this really difficult experience with the home birth to hospital transfer the first time around, from the word go, from the from the week, I knew I was pregnant. I knew I wanted to try for another home birth. It was never. It was just never any other consideration to go anywhere else. And because we had made the move to the Highlands up here, there's really limited options in terms of natural birth. There's not a birth centre. The local hospital is only 25 minutes away, but it's you know very conventional hospital, fairly medicalized. You can absolutely, I'm sure, um, be determined to have a natural birth within that setting, but I just didn't feel that was ever going to be my first option, my mm-hmm. first choice. Um, Because I I didn't want to be surrounded by pain relief options. I I knew how I felt in transition and I didn't want those options around me. Um, So I inquired so soon, I think just in the first couple of weeks with the community midwife team here. We do have a number of incredible community midwife teams like across the Highlands. So I got talking to the one that I knew would be responsible for a home birth for us. They were really supportive. We just kept planning along those lines. We planned to have another home birth uh, pool available here. So we bought our pool. Uh, I think going into the, when was it? The eighth month of pregnancy, things got really, really tough physically because I got, well, I got many an infection from my son starting nursery. Mm -hmm. So as any parent knows whose child goes to nursery, they're just little bug factories. So, (laughs) so so sick every second week, (laughs) aren't they? Absolutely. And you know, it's it's a double whammy because when he's sick, you know, you're you're doing more childcare yourself at home, but I was getting sick myself too. So I picked up a couple of infections. And then I also um after those first couple, I picked up bronchitis and I think I think from a couple of respiratory affections it just didn't clear. And by that point I was, yeah, eight months pregnant. I had a big belly, a big baby inside, pressing on my lungs. I just wasn't able to clear um you know my infection and so it it kind of went really deep um and I had that for the probably for about a month of just coughing fits at night just feeling really unwell (laughs) and I went to the GP I think three or four times just saying what what can I do you know I was so desperate to clear it I didn't want to go into you know home birth situation where I was coughing and coughing and coughing and this is into the 39th week And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, please, labour don't come early. Just give my body a chance to properly recover. Um, And so, yeah, and it it was probably a couple of weeks before that time, actually. I had my, I think it's my 36-week check. I had the home birth midwives, the community midwives come round and they do this thing here. I'm sure it's probably fairly global, a home birth assessment. So they came to our house and they... um, you know, talk you through this checklist of everything you need to have ready. They deliver this whole bunch of equipment to you. They talk you through that. Um, I actually really struggled in that appointment because I felt like it was a list of things that I couldn't do. You know, I I really I had I had a good relationship with the midwives, but I felt like there was a lot of box checking (laughs) you know they were saying if you have meconium in your waters you will be going to hospital if you have xyz you will be going to hospital if you have an infection you and your newborn can't go in the same ambulance you know and I was just like pretty aghast at this I was like no I'm not happy with this I I don't want to be told I don't want to be spoken to like that I don't think it was an intentional thing on their part but I felt like really constrained by that and. Within the same breath, they also said they couldn't support the home birth on two weekends through my due date period. So they said they couldn't. So my due date was always Christmas Eve. They said, oh, we have to tell you, we can't support your home birth for the whole weekend of Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas. (laughs) So that was from the Friday evening, which was the 23rd into the Monday, which included my entire due date. Um, And then they said, because of staff shortages, we also can't support you if you go into labour the next weekend, New Year's weekend. And this was, yeah, this was 36 weeks pregnant. I was being told, you know, I'm highly likely to go into labour on those dates. (laughs) That's like half of my kind of due period. Um, And so I, they left that appointment and I just burst into tears. I was so upset and I didn't know what to do. I was determined to advocate for myself. Especially because you know I've I've only ever wanted two children. This is my last chance to have a positive home birth experience, and I'm quite a determined person. I was absolutely determined they weren't going to take that away from me. And I don't think you know it's not the midwife's fault. I think it's the kind of powers that be above them that just hadn't staffed their teams adequately.
1: Well, I think this is really important information you're sharing because first of all, so you went through the NHS in the you know. United kingdom that's um state funded it's you know part of the hospital system and it is it is a different reality than like if you have employed your independent midwives they have a much more uh, rigid policy and guidelines around things like what you just mentioned that they talked you through during this meeting and um you can still obviously being a sovereign woman decide Yes and no to things, Uh, and depending on the midwives you're with, the care professionals, you know they can decide to support you in that or not as you accept or decline things and their policies, right? Depending on their level of, yeah, well, how they view their job and and what is possible for them under their registration and so on and so forth, right? And it is a massive shortage of midwives around the Mm -hmm. world; like it's getting worse and worse because. Midwives are leaving the profession because of this, right? Because they can't be the midwives that they desire because they're so heavily bound to policies and guidelines and bullied if they don't follow it as well. So good midwives leave the system, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because of this. And then you as a birthing woman might not have another choice. Like you're in this highland area. Maybe they're not any independent midwives to choose from. Maybe this is the only no. option if you want to have a home birth. If you don't choose to free births. Um, which mm-hmm. more, unfortunately as well, I want to say unfortunately because it is maybe not a choice from a moment to free birth all the time, it's because maybe necessity that they don't want to choose the services provided in their area and that if there was a midwife available that they felt confident having there, then they would have chosen that, but they choose free birth because they, they just, it's no other choice.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we discussed all those avenues. You know, when I was in Edinburgh, I looked into independent midwives and there were none available even in Edinburgh because of the insurance issue you know and so I knew when we moved to the highlands if there's none in Edinburgh there's none in the highlands (laughs) we don't have that option I probably you know I I bought some books on free birth and I probably would have considered it myself but my partner was just absolutely 100% not up for that and I understand why you know he didn't want to take any risks and didn't feel comfortable and I didn't want to be in a birth situation where he didn't feel comfortable because I knew that I would pick up on that so that wasn't an option for us um so I was relying fully on on this NHS funded community midwife team and you know I had so much empathy for them as well that I I I know the political situation you know they're in at the moment there's so many issues around that um but I also wanted to advocate for myself and you know in Mm -hmm. Scotland um they do say I think it's um there's various charities that publish um the the rights of women that the rights we should have in the UK under the NHS and one is to choose to give birth where you want to give birth and that includes home and so you know one of the most incredible inspirations I had through this time this difficult time the last couple of weeks of my pregnancy was my um, prenatal yoga teacher she's called Judy Cameron she runs a she used to be a midwife and um, she has also been a yoga teacher for like 40 years or something she's just An absolute knowledge, Um, and she advised me to do some letter writing, you know, to the senior, you know, the the director of midwifery for the Highland region, people like that, some of our MPEs, MSPs in Scotland. And so I did that. I wrote, um, there's a charity called Birth Rights, I think it's called, um, I'll double check that, but they actually have a a letter um, template that you can use for situations like this. And so she gave me the advice just to go and look into the this charity. And I, I took some advice from them and I wrote a letter. And within, I think, three or four days, I had three or four phone calls from quite senior people in midwifery in Scotland saying they were going to do what they, they could for me. And then I finally had a phone call from the community midwife team saying, OK, we've we've covered that shortage for those two weekends um so they absolutely managed to sort the problem
1: (laughs) oh my god I love that so much for you I get goosebumps and that also shows you like the power we have Mm -hmm. as we embody our sovereignty and we ask for what we want and you know whether that is saying we don't want something or we do want something that each woman needs to start doing this and we will see change because it can only come from the women themselves it can't come from the Mm -hmm. midwives it has yeah. to come from the women.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I had that kind of three or four days of quite intense stress. So, okay, I'm probably gonna have to go to hospital. But, you know, it was really reassuring that actually the sen- senior people that need to listen, they did listen in that instance and they did work it out. And I just wanna say to other women, if you are in that situation, don't think you're powerless. You can you can ask questions and you can advocate and actually writing letters does in Scotland anyway, it does really make an impact, I think. I love that. So, oh.
1: yeah. So beautiful. So during, obviously during your pregnancy, we worked together. What else did you do to work through, you know, your fears and, and also heal this previous um, birth as much as possible to, to feel this confident in going into your second birth?
0: Yeah I mean the the main thing for me was processing what happened in my first labour and a big part of that was actually requesting my medical records and looking through everything and speaking to the midwife team Mm -hmm. um and that that did help me start to accept I think I really needed to just accept and I spent many months even in my pregnancy and earlier pregnancy being hard on myself because you know I, I am quite a determined person and I think um you know, I've, done, I've done a lot of really hard physical things in the past in terms of endurance sports. And I thought, why why couldn't I just decide to stay at home and get my waters broken? I so hard myself and thought that that decision led to my son being separated from me. And none of that would have happened if we hadn't gone to hospital. And I don't know whether that's the case or not, but I just had to accept. I'm never going to know all the answers. I can get some of the answers through my records, but at some point you have to just accept. Mm. And so I, I worked on doing that in my own time and and actually a lot of my pregnancy this time was spent um you know I, I was training to be a yoga teacher at the same time so i was doing lots of meditation practice and yoga practice and i think that helps me to some degree as well just yeah. having that relaxation and meditation time just to really reflect back and also try and project forward um into you know a positive birth experience the second time round, and and just Try and do lots of visualizations of of how it would evolve for me this time, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, yeah, working with you, we, me, and my partner did some coaching with you, and that was super useful. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so. I, I I just love speaking to people in the birth space, <laughs> and as especially people that just hold so much space for other women, and you you just know so much about it, um, and it's just it's feeling heard and like. The, you know the feelings of trauma I've had aren't unjustified, really, mm. because actually a lot of people, you know, in your life, that haven't, especially men, I've got to say, that haven't been through birth, they they're never going to fully get it. They're never going to fully get it. And so speaking to other women who can actually say, "Yeah, I I hear you, and I know exactly what you mean." You know, that meant a lot to me. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So
1: sorted for the Christmas and New Year's weekend. You go into 39 weeks. Are you getting better from your chest infection that you were going on? Yeah,
0: I'd say only going into 40 weeks. Yeah, the end of the 39th week, literally the last few days before I went into labor, I started to feel like I was getting better, but I I absolutely wasn't 100 percent recovered. Mm -hmm. And so it's another it's another reflection for me, I think that you can get through labor if you're not feeling 100 it just happens oh yeah <laughs> we did get through it <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> you know I, wa- I was being a perfectionist I wanted to feel mm. absolutely you know healthy and the best I could possibly feel but I didn't feel like that and, and we got through it and we we had the experience we wanted I um I had a few days yeah I had a few days of feeling like I had an upset stomach um while still feeling some of the effects of the bronchitis, I was still coughing quite a lot. I wasn't quite having the same nighttime coughing fits, but I actually got up on the twenty. So my, my due date was Christmas Eve, as we said before, it's the 24th. And I was actually up in the night on the 22nd of December being sick, just once, but being sick, really upset stomach, thinking, you know, is this the bronchitis still or is this the beginning of labour? You just don't know. I didn't have any other signs at that point, but, actually those signs continued that the upset stomach continued for a few days before I finally did go into labor and knew I was you know in labor.
1: Do you want to hold space for a woman's rite of passage from maiden to mother and provide a safe sacred and physiological birth space for her and her family? Do you view birth as a sacred portal and a life altering event worthy of honoring, safeguarding and celebrating? Then the Spiritual Midwife Mentorship Program is for you. Starting on the 15th of May, weaving ancient and modern knowledge of her story, women's wisdom, physiological birth skills and birth advocacy and the art of sacred space holding. This program is unique to its kind as it also offers one-on-one mentoring with me, personally assisting you in becoming the clear channel and the best space holder you can be. You will be held, nurtured and supported for a whole year inside our worldwide spiritual midwife community as you learn and embody the teachings and skills and start sharing your gifts with the world through monthly masterclasses q a support and sharing circles as well as the one-on-one mentoring this program is like no other program in the world in its depth of value and support that you'll receive for more information and to apply click on the link in the show notes or visit me at thenaturalbirthcourse.com
0: yeah let's dive on into your birth story now okay so so yeah after the few days with an upset stomach um I was sick a couple of times I think and I think the second second time third time I I kind of knew that this is what happened the first time around I feel like my body's starting to clear out um but I didn't have any surges yet um I didn't feel anything like that so I just kind of went with it. I was trying to stay relaxed um, whilst not feeling 100%. Um, on the 22nd of December, I also had some surges in the middle of the night that were kind of 10 minutes apart, but they, they only continued uh, for 90 minutes. Um, and that was it. So, again, I, you know, you kind of always question whether you're imagining it, if it's something else, if it's yet another infection. This was on the 22nd. So, yeah, I I still had kind of upset stomach continuing for the next day or so. Our little boy, Soren, by this point is, well, he's just turned two. He wasn't well either. (laughs) He had a really bad cold from nursery. So I was just trying to, you know, maximise the time I was spending with him uh, because I knew that labour is probably right around the corner. We'd already made a decision months before that we thought it was best not to have Soren. At the second labour, even though we would be at home because he's just going through the stage where he just wants when I'm in the room, he wants to be with his mum. And I don't think he would fully comprehend what was going on if I was in labour. I think it might scare him, especially having such a long labour experience the first time round. I didn't want anything to kind of offset my flow. And I I thought happy pregnancy hormones might not fully kick in if I'm worried about his well-being and if he's in the room and needing me. So we'd made that decision um, and on that uh, morning of the 23rd, so we're going into the 23rd of December, when I'd had a few signs going on um, and he wasn't well. And for that day, I just decided at that time, okay, I feel like things might kick off. And given I'd had a few surges the night before, things might kick off if we sent him to his grandparents today and just see what happens going into the evening. You know it's midwinter. It's getting dark at like half three, four p.m. We have lots of lovely, you know, nighttime coming up where things just might really kick off. So he went to his grandparents, which uh, you know they're just a mile along the road from us. So it's it's we're so grateful for that. And so I was able to really relax that evening. And me and my partner, we just settled down on the couch. We had you know like a list of feel good films to watch. So we we started watching a couple. And uh, yeah, without fail, 6pm that night, the surges kicked in again. And I could feel, I could really feel this was it. I, You know, what it, it reminded me of the first time they were completely manageable uh, about, I think about 15 minutes apart to begin with. And they just continued until, you know, kind of midnight time when they increased to every 10 minutes. And yeah, so I ended up going to bed thinking, I feel like I'm going to be getting up quite soon. But with my experience the first time round, you know, quite vivid in my head, I really wanted to rest as much as I possibly could. So we went to bed around midnight. They did increase in frequency. I think they got as close as kind of eight minutes apart through that first night um, and around 3 a.m. But it was absolutely manageable to stay in bed. I did have to work through them. and. I, I took my wave comb to bed, actually. This is something that I hadn't used in the first labour, but someone had recommended it this time around. So if other women aren't aware, it's it's a comb that you can use on acupressure points on your hand. And you basically just kind of dig it in. And it's meant to work with the gate theory of essentially distracting your mind from one pain sensation to another. Mm. And I just found it really helpful to do something with my hands, especially when you're lying in a super comfy, soft bed which isn't the best place for contractions usually. But they were manageable, working through them in this way. And around 3am, I just thought, you know, I need to get up now. I need something different. This is kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm working through them okay, but they're getting slightly more intense. And I just want to go down into this really kind of peaceful birth space I'd set up in our spare bedroom downstairs and just have all the tools around me that I know I might need and just be there. And so I went downstairs I said to my partner, don't worry about getting up. I just want to do what I can this time on my own um, until I really need you. So, And I I don't want you to lose sleep if you don't need to. So I just want to get into the space I need to get into on my own. I went downstairs. I built this little nest around me, lots of throws. I had the TENS machine. Um, I had, you know, oil burners and candles and things. And I stayed there, I think, for three hours or so. I didn't I I had the TENS machine but I didn't actually put it on till a bit later I think I put it on around 6am so I spent those three hours just working through things with the wave comb and just breathing just with the birth ball just breathing. Mm. I ended up going back to bed for a little bit my partner got up to see if I was okay and I said you know I feel tired again. I'm just going to go back to bed. I didn't feel like the surges were increasing in frequency anymore. They were still kind of 8 to 10 minutes apart. Yeah, they weren't they, they definitely weren't reaching the 3 and 10 that, you know, you, you are advised to call the midwives at. So, I went back to bed for it was probably only about an hour or so. Um but then the surges did going back to bed for me, through this whole labour experience, it actually served to just trigger surges to become more intense. So I actually started using it as a way to ramp things up. <laughs> so I went back to bed and they did get more intense again. So I got up, um, a partner, Duncan, then got up with me. And that at that point, we put the TENS machine on and I'd found this really useful in my first labour. And again, I did find it a real help. That additional kind of sensation at the peak of every surge was yeah, mm. really super helpful. So, yeah, I also played around with movement and sound a little bit more than I had the first time round. I have read some really useful books in the second pregnancy about the power of just moving your body when you're going through, you know, intensity of surges. Mm. And so I walked around our house for a bit of stamping my feet. I was kind of slapping my thighs just doing everything I can to kind of vary vary my tools really.
1: Yeah. To
0: get through it all. And at this point it was still really manageable. And I really love how you say
1: you used like going to bed as the ramp up tool because most people were saying the opposite. But this is the key of like especially if you are and like I recognize, you know, having worked with so many hundreds of women in labor and birth, I recognize you um Like the way you labor, like you really need to feel on all levels, like trusting and safe and relaxed. And for all levels to be that, like actually going to sleep or trying to sleep just gets you into that deep level of Mm -hmm. rest, right? Mm -hmm. And especially if you go for a longer time, like that, even just lying, having a rest, even if it's only 20 minutes or, you know, whatever you can get, that can actually do exactly that. And I've seen that so many times, especially if you've had, if you had contractions for a while, or they might have been more regular and then they peter off a little bit, just go mm. and have a sleep. See what happens. Yeah, serves a purpose,
0: doesn't
1: it? Yes, <laughs> the time. because that's what you want. You want to be pulled in, 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 and you, you know, for some people that means actually sleeping is a great tool or resting at least, like really yeah. putting your whole body into a restful position. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it helps calm the mind as well, doesn't it? I think I think one of my downfalls the first time around was <clears throat> my mind was far too active because I wasn't resting. <laughs> and I'm prone to quite an active mind anyway. Uh mm. and I think I just I really recognize this time I need to kind of work on that. Um yeah, being more mindful. Uh, but kind of getting into getting into my body more than um my head. <laughs> yeah, being more mindless, maybe. Mindless, <laughs> sort <of> yeah. <laughs>
1: but anyway, I love it. <laughs> it's it's, the it opposite, is a it? yes. Yeah, it's a funny word because it's like it should be called mindless. But yeah. it's called mindful. But it's that thing, isn't it? Just like how can I like you, you know, it sounds like you really practice like meditation and relaxation in pregnancy and that mm-hmm. is truly the tool, isn't it? Like and it's hard yeah. to access when you don't have a practice before labor and birth. Like if you, if you never have that deep practice where you can get into stillness of mind and beingness in your body, which is mm-hmm. like, so something that we just never do in a modern day society. It's something mm-hmm. we actually have to practice, right? Yeah,
0: totally. And
1: it sounds like you really access that this time.
0: Mm-hmm. I did, but <laughs> going into the next stage of the story, I did have. Yeah, so I had a crisis of confidence, I would say, from about 9am. <laughs> so I don't think I said before, but we did decide to have a doula this time round, And thankfully, there was a doula available in the Highlands, actually a Dutch um, woman who is absolutely incredible doula, who spends half of her time in Inverness in the Highlands because uh, her partner lives there. We knew we wanted to call her when I was reaching active labour, And I think looking back, we hadn't really discussed when I wanted someone in the room. I knew I wanted someone at some point as a support, but I I didn't really consider how it might affect uh, my state of mind in terms of just being, you know, being a little bit prone to anxiety and worry, especially with the first experience in my mind where things had slowed. I didn't want to do anything to slow my progress and to get out of that kind of flow state that I'd been in, and so uh, w- when my partner said, "Okay, you know, around 8 a.m. I think it was in the morning of Christmas Eve," he said, um, "Should we call our doula?" Because they were there were still around eight minutes apart. I think by that point my surges, and the moment he said that, I just really had a bit of a crisis, thinking, "I feel like just the action of calling." I just, it kind of triggered this crisis of confidence in my head, again, getting back into my head (laughs) where I shouldn't have been living. Um, I I was just worried that just having someone come to our house with their expectation that I was in active labour would almost just slow things for me. Mm. And I hadn't really anticipated that being an issue. I hadn't really thought about it. And that was just interesting. Uh, It's just been interesting to reflect on that part of it. And we did call her and she did arrive around 9am. And this had kind of coincided with obviously daylight coming again. And my first experience with my first labour being so, you know, protracted and tailing off in the daytimes, I thought, okay, if people arrive with the expectation that I'm going to give birth today and it's daylight, you know, things are going to slow. I just got into a really negative headspace. And it was, it was, yeah. It was quite hard to get back from that. And you know, when Tice arrived, I I was just really honest with her and we ended up in my little nest space in the in the bedroom we set up as the as the birth space. We ended up me, my partner and Tice just having a little chat. <laughs> and you know, she said, I can tell you're struggling with something, just talk about it because we need to get it out, which was oh, good advice. Yeah. So we did. We just talked and I had a cry. I, I spoke about my fears. Um, you know, by this point, I'd, I'd essentially it started. It started around six PM the, the night before, and this was nine AM the next day. And at this point, I think because I was in a fear space, they had tapered off to about every sixteen minutes. You know, so I, so I was like, "Oh, it's happening! It's happening! It's slowing down! It's happening again!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she gave me the great advice. She just said you have to accept your experience this time round. Just tell me your fears. Let's talk as much as you need to get some more rest, go upstairs, go back to bed, get some more rest. And um, it will be what it will be, but you have to try and relax again, get back into your body. So we did that. I tried to go up. Well, I did go upstairs. I tried to have a rest. Um, Again, the surges did ramp up again. So I was kind of, I was kind of, darting around all over the place between the birth space and between bed upstairs. Things did increase again probably to to about every I don't know, four to eight minutes. They were really variable. I felt like my surges never really stayed consistent. For the first 19 hours of this labour, they they were not consistent at all. And I was starting to wonder whether a baby was uh, posterior and back-to-back position and whether that was causing this because Soren had been the first time round. You know, he he had been posterior, but then he had actually turned at the last moment. So that contributed to quite a, a tricky experience the first time. But you know, they were ramping up again. So I just moved around. I used my tools. I tried just to be in my body and to and to listen to what my body needed through every surge. And there were times that I definitely our doula was absolutely incredible but there were times when I questioned you know do I just need to be on my own because I just for a a good hour there I just wanted to be in the ensuite to the the spare room we'd used as our birth space I just wanted to be in there and shut the door and just have music on listen to that and that was really (laughs) music um that I put on at that time was actually really helping me get out of my head and it took me back to some amazing memories and experiences of trail running because part of my birth playlist was my trail running playlist and it got me back into that space of just using my body which is what i used to do in races you know and try not be in my head too much that's
1: safe.
0: and it was there's a lot of parallels between you know being in the latter stages of a really really tough race and and needing not to be obsessed with the times that you're running and how much longer how many more miles you know you need to not get too wrapped up in that and there's a lot of parallels between that and um and labour, <laughs> which was interesting. Uh so yeah, so we had a couple of errors of of things happening again, um, and me just trying to trying to relax into it and not not question things too much and just let it all unfurl as it was meant to. But as they did increase a little bit, they they were never quite three and ten, but my partner Duncan had had the advice from our community midwife team that they don't necessarily need to be three and ten to call the midwives this time round because, you know, it's the second labour and it might happen faster. And they kind of, they like to know. And one of the midwives I'd been working with through my pregnancy came round, I think it was maybe around 10 or 11 a.m. And she, you know, she didn't say she needed to check me or anything like that. She was really supportive, just had a chat with me, was there for a few surges. Um, and just said you you are in labour you know you you may not quite be in active labour we won't know until you want us to check you but I'm I'm confident this is it for you so you just you just have to relax into it um she was really supportive but then she left to do quite a few other house calls and I was glad I I didn't really want any midwives being there yet Mm. um so we got through another couple of hours just, you know, using all the tools that I've talked about and we got to around, I think it was around midday on Christmas Eve and we called the midwives again because I think they were kind of, we, we'd we had maybe three or four surges in a row that had been four to five minutes apart. I should mention we were using a contraction timer that looking back, I think it was adding to my stress. Yeah. So. I ended up saying I remember you saying this in a previous podcast as well I remember you commenting on them and you think they're you know you think it's just a tool (laughs) it's useful we need to know (laughs) how many contractions we're having in order to phone the midwives okay but I think it's just not a tool that maybe is useful for the mama to be looking at (laughs) so I then delegated to my partner yeah
1: the mother should not be aware or told yeah like it's just like i love your story and i love i feel like there's so much wisdom here to like mind over body like how powerful our mind is and as like it really feels like you were going in and out of being in your birthing body and then coming back into your mind and your mind you know because it is especially yeah. the first, that is what the whole first stage of labor is all about you know the first before you get into that depth of birth it's like you have to you have to come to a point where you decide somehow (laughs) or fall into surrender and especially as modern women where we are so prone to maybe controlling and wanting you know wanting to be in control right and so strong in us but in birth we need to do the absolute opposite and it's so tricky Mm -hmm. and it really is like even thinking like It is. That's where the meditation practice is so powerful, Mm -hmm. like tapping into that and going like, I fully accept and surrender. This can take days. This can take 10 minutes. I'm Mm going to
0: just allow whatever it is and not try to control it. But that is so hard. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I was doing some meditation, as I said, throughout my pregnancy. But actually, looking back, I don't think it was enough. And I don't think it was specific enough, you know, to surrendering to the process. And so, I mean, you learn so much and it's never you're never going to look back and think. This went perfectly from beginning to end. And again, it's all about the learnings, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's
1: perfect for exactly uh, where you are in life mm-hmm. at that point in time, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like birth do teach us what we need to learn from motherhood as well. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, midday on Christmas Eve, we did call the midwives again just to give them a heads up um, that we thought we were getting a bit closer. And another midwife then fairly promptly arrived actually and this midwife we had never met before throughout the whole pregnancy and it did it did um, give me a bit of nervousness because you know in my birth plan I'd had um, that I wanted to be in a separate space in this in this room that we'd set up and for the we've got a really big kind of it's, it's an open plan space in our main living area there's a kitchen dining space, living room, all open plan. And this bedroom that we'd set up in was, you know, closed off from that from a, by a door. And I wanted the midwives to go into that shared space and use it as their own, but only come in, you know, when I needed them at the end. But this midwife came in straight into the birthing space, chatting away. My partner then came in and asked if she wanted a cup of tea. And I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is not in our birth plan can you all stop talking about tea and what you need to eat and things like that? <laughs> and I just, um, I, you know, it he, he was just being polite. But I think I, these type of things do happen even when you have discussed you don't want them to. And it's, it sounds like quite a minor thing mm-hmm. to anyone else uh, who's not trying to birth a baby. <laughs> but actually, it can really disrupt your space, can't it?
1: massively um, massively no this is a big deal like this is really important what you're sharing because this really does affect labor and it does when people are in hospital and people coming in out and and in your home it doesn't matter where you are if it's stranger especially but just someone mm-hmm. who's not aware of physiological birth which just sounds like this midwife somehow is not because mm-hmm. you would never do that in that case you just don't walk in on a birthing woman chatting away you don't you mm-hmm. sneak in you observe in the corner you know you might whisper hi in between contractions and like I'm here how are you but you don't do that
0: that is I disruptive
1: know.
0: 100% yeah and they obviously are not aware that that can disrupt things I, I don't know I mean it was, the chat that they were having was very practical and she you know she was asking how I was getting on and but I yeah I was very aware that you know, with, with our doula, Tice, and my partner, we had discussed that, you know, ideally in the midwives will talk to them first. And I just think, I think it's actually really difficult for, or it was quite difficult for my birthing team to be really assertive because sometimes it's easy to, it, it, we're not like that in daily life. You know, we're polite. We're probably too people-pleasing. We We don't like to say to people, no, don't do that when they come into your home space. It's just not a natural thing, is it? So I think that was potentially quite difficult for them. Um, and it, it was a very sh- it was a few minutes looking back. It wasn't. it was disruptive for a few minutes and actually then things really improved. Um, and it was it's quiet again after that. So this midwife, she asked if I wanted to be checked and I filled her in on how things had gone. You know, I said it's been 18, 19 hours by this point. I feel like my surges are really irregular. I'm not sure if baby's posterior again. Um, And actually I did decide I did want a cervical check at that time. So she gave me a check fairly promptly and she said, okay, you are three to four centimetres. She said, your cervix is still a little bit far back. You know, it's still got some work to do, but it is softening. Um, And she said, you're right on the edge of You know, active labor because I guess they call active labor from four centimeters. Is that
1: right? It is right. You know, when when you think of you know the medical terms and like in the system of things that we do today, you know, it's it's gone from being three. In some places now, actually, especially some places here in Sweden, we talk about six centimeters. So it's very varied around the world. And at the end of the day, if no one ever checked you, there would be different markers for
0: active labor, wouldn't it? So.
1: Yeah, it's just, yeah, one of the ways that the medical society wants to labour. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the conventional measures, I guess. Yeah. Uh, You know, I guess with the low bar (laughs) I had from the first labour of being one centimetre when I was checked for the first time, I kind of expected I wouldn't be eight centimetres because it was still pretty irregular. And I was managing really well through surges, apart from the kind of negative headspace that kept creeping in. But, you know, I, I was fairly happy with that. But I did say to her, you know, do you think baby's posterior? She had a good feel around and she said, you know, I think baby might be posterior. And then she, it, it took a while. She said she went back on that and said, no, you know what? I think I think baby is in a good like forward facing position. Um, I can't remember the term for it, but she gave that term and she said, no, I, I think baby is, you know, is OK. Um, position wise but she said there's some there's some positions that I can help you into through some contractions that might help get things moving because it sounds like you you want to encourage things to move in the most natural way and this is when you know I, I started to find her really supportive actually from this point despite the start we had I um I asked her with the first experience in mind, I asked her, you know, will you be wanting to break my waters at home, you know, to get things moving? I'd actually thought that's what she meant. And she said, no, you know, we don't, we don't actually like to do that at home in the Highlands. We like to encourage you into, um, into positions first and see if that can get things moving. And she said, there's this position that we can do. If you take me to your bedroom, we need to do it on the bed, but it's a sideline release position. Yeah. So I'd read about this. I'd, you know been on the website spinning babies I'd read about it and never practiced it and I had actually intended to through pregnancy it was one of these things that I just never got around to doing but I had read about it and I think it was my yoga teacher that had recommended it so she took me upstairs my partner came to and we lay Well, I lay in the bed on my side um so I had to have one leg straight out uh, behind me you know um On the bed, just lying on my side, right on the edge of the bed, actually, to the point where I felt like I was going to fall off. It felt quite uncomfortable. And our midwife was supporting me. And I had the top leg kind of hooked over the bottom leg. So it was like bent and dangling to the floor. Um, And then you're just kind of lying on your side. So we did that. I think I went through maybe two surges in that position. And then she got me to move. So I was facing the other direction, another couple of surges in that position. And in my head, I'm thinking I had quite low expectations that it was going to do anything, but I was quite intrigued by it. <laughs> and it was super uncomfortable to lie in the bed through these surges, you know, not nice. Didn't want to be there, which again reassured me that things were happening because yeah. I know from past experience that, you know, when things do start happening, it's the last place you want to be is your bed. It's just it's just too soft a surface to kind of give you that structure you need to get through a surge. So we did that, I got up, we were obviously in our bedroom, upstairs in the house by this point, away from the birth space, away from the birth pool. The birth pool, I should say, was already set up, but we hadn't started filling it because, you know, I wasn't that um, advanced, I was only four centimetres. And I guess the downside of having said yes to the cervical check is that all I had in my head was four centimetres, four centimetres. You know, I've got a long way to go. I then felt this almost immediate surge coming and it was intense and I asked my partner to do some hip compressions because that had been really really helpful in my first labour experience and he'd done a few to this point downstairs but I didn't feel like I absolutely needed them to get through but with this surge I had after the sideline release I was like oh my goodness I need that I need that hip compression so I said I said Duncan you can't go anywhere now you have to be with me in case another one comes you know I need you here And so I just stayed there in my bedroom leaning over a chair and they came thick and fast. Like I, you know, we weren't timing them at this point. There was too much going on, but I think they were probably at least every two minutes apart. So I had this immediate like further ramp up in surges Mm. and looking back, it was just the most incredible time. And I had no idea what was happening at the time. I just had no expectation that, um, things would happen that fast yeah
1: so for anyone listening who might be like whoa what is this magical trick the sideline release it helps open your pelvis to allow the head to descend further and that's what really kicks off labor right the further down your baby's head gets the more you know it presses on the cervix and then the feedback loop just increases the oxytocin and so on and so forth. So this can be a really good um, exercise to use if you feel like your labor is going for Like if you have codoma labor, if you have spaced out contractions and you just want to encourage maybe to drop down further down. I mean, other things like, you know, sitting on the toilet and those things can really help. But that's more when you actually have regular contractions, right? Because then you allow gravity. But when you have them a bit more spaced out, yeah, this can be really good. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah it was it just had such an incredible impact looking back so I'd definitely recommend any women going through labor where things are irregular that is something to try <laughs> um so yeah they they were not regular anymore they were every two minutes they ramped up even further to I would say every 90 seconds after that and then I had some back-to-back ones and I never made it back downstairs to the pool <laughs> that was it I was stuck upstairs you know I just did not want to move anywhere. I started to find it hard though, using this chair as a support because it's quite a low down chair, I was leaning over it. I just didn't feel quite right for what I needed at that time. Um, So we went next door to our little bathroom upstairs and I just, yeah, I found it more helpful just holding onto the bath, which is obviously a really solid structure. Holding onto the bath, I was kind of bent over mostly at that time with my partner next to me doing hip compressions. And that's when they started just coming back to back, and it was just like this absolute tidal wave of sensation. I can't. It's it's hard to even put into words, isn't it? It's just. I I just at that time, all I could think was, oh my goodness, I've got another. I was convinced I was going to go through another night because I I'd, I'd been four centimeters. So I was, I was trying to kind of have a conservative expectation. That, okay, this might continue for another night, but obviously at that time when it was getting so intense i was questioning how i could continue and that must have been transition i must have gone from four to eight or something in the space of just half an hour it, it felt so so fast
1: and this is the thing right and i mean because we're not linear we're just not linear and you can be like i keep on telling women this like you can be you can be especially as a second time mom like you can be open three centimeters walking around the town not, you know, not knowing because you're not in labor. And and then you can be three centimeters and go for weeks like that before having a baby. Mm-hmm. Or you can be three centimeters and you can have a baby within an hour. Yeah. And it really doesn't tell us much in one sense. That's no. why, yeah, to be aware of this when you do consent to a, a valid examination. And also if you're a birth worker, like obviously if you're a birth worker, you should know this, but not everyone really clicks onto this and still believes yeah. in the linear masculine idea about birth which is so not correct yeah feminine creatures and we're circular
0: (laughs) absolutely and you know the hospitals in Scotland still work off the one centimeter an hour expectation Mm. for women and that is what totally hampered me and affected my first labor where you know I was in the pool for four hours and they said one centimeter is not enough essentially that was what they were saying Mm. in different words to me um so, you know, I, I, I really think that needs to change. <laughs> and this experience is just, it is so, you know, potentially empowering to other women to know, especially first-time mamas, to know before going into an experience that you can be four centimetres if you consent to an exam and you can have given birth to that baby within 90 minutes. And that's what happened to me. <laughs> you know, I was four centimetres, you know, I was really supported by this midwife to do the sideline release. I, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened in my labour if we hadn't done that, if I had gone through another night. And I'll never know that, but it would be really interesting to know. Um, but, you know, they ramped up. We were in the bathroom when they were back to back. And, yeah, so from the time, I think it was about 1pm when we did the sideline release, I'd had the examination between 12 and 1. 1pm um, 1 when we did the release. and our little girl was born at 2.39 p.m. So it was just a little over 90 minutes by the time she, she came out. And, you know, when we were going through these back-to-back contractions, I was, <laughs> our midwife, it was mainly just me and Duncan, my partner in the bathroom, but the midwife was kind of popping up and down. But at the time they started coming back to back, it was just me and him in the room. And actually, I think they didn't really, our doula was downstairs filling up the pool by this point, which she'd been recommended to do by the midwife. I think because of the sounds I was making. Yeah, the the midwife wasn't in the room at the time. um, Quite swiftly started hearing the noises, the kind of roars I was making from the bathroom. And she came up and down and she said at one point in one of the visits, she said, you really need to um, breathe your, you know, every breath you're taking, every roar you're making, you need to kind of breathe that all the way down because she said the sound, and you know, I'm sure she was right, the sound I was making, I wasn't screaming, but it wasn't a really low noise either. It was kind of mid, in the kind of middle. Um, and it, partly because of the bronchitis, this is where it really hampered me. I felt like if I was to breathe that breath all the way out and take that sound all the way down, I would cough. And I did, you know, it, and it was really bothering me actually in terms of getting through these super intense surges the the temptation to cough and the kind of trigger, triggering of that cough mechanism in me was was really getting into my head and I was thinking I can't do this, I can't do this and I know I was probably going through a transition at the time but I was thinking how am I going to keep getting through these back-to-back surges if I have so many hours to go um, so she was saying breathe all the way down, breathe, breathe your sound all the way out right down to your bottom you know and Duncan then started repeating this, what she was saying, you know, to really try and instill it in me. And it just, it it really started bothering me that people were talking to me. <laughs> just, I think I actually, this is the one time I snapped through my whole labour. I said to Duncan, I said, um, I am, I'm doing everything I can, you know, I'm trying to do this. I just can't because of my cough. Um, and so he didn't, he didn't say that at all anymore after he just, um, he didn't try and reinsert that um what the midwife was saying so that was it was quite funny looking back on it you know they were really trying to help but I just I just wanted silence in the room at that time that's all I needed I just wanted peace and silence to kind of really focus on getting through them because it was taking kind of all my um all of my kind of conscious effort to get through each third Mm. I just felt the baby start to move through my birth canal and it was so sudden and you know everything had been really intense for the last hour but I didn't expect the pushing to come at that point in the bathroom you know I was expecting to be able to go downstairs to get in the pool um and I just screamed at Duncan I just well I screamed downstairs because we were the only ones in the room by that point in the birth um I screamed baby's coming because I just knew baby was coming imminently by that point every part of my being knew that this baby was coming in a few minutes and it was the most—I don't know if "incredible" is the right word—but it was just the most powerful sensation, feeling this baby move through me. <laughs> Which I'd had an epidural with my son Soren, and I just really, I really um had to grieve the loss of that experience. You know, I never got to feel the pushing sensation because I was completely numb. I never got to feel him moving or crowning or coming out of me, and this time. Yeah, I just felt everything. (laughs) And, you know, I wouldn't even say it was painful by that point. It was just powerful. It was like this this just huge thing just moving through you. (laughs) And I shouted to Duncan just to take my clothes off because I was still fully clothed. We hadn't, you know, we we, we didn't think uh, we were that close to labour. Obviously, at the time I had the cervical exam. So I still had some leggings on and a top and I said, take my leggings off. And so he did. He whipped them off and the midwife then ran upstairs the doula I think you know we're meant to have in Scotland two midwives present at every birth by the end and uh, the second one hadn't made it in time for hours and so I think the first midwife was really grateful to have a doula there and I think the you know there can be some tension between doulas and midwives here in Scotland sometimes at births Um, but you know, she was so helpful to the midwives and she was bringing up all the stuff they needed. We didn't have that room set up to birth a baby. So there was nothing on the floor, you know. She helped with all that. Um, And I wasn't aware of any of this going on at the time. I was just aware that this baby was coming out of me. <laughs> and towards the end of each surge, by that point, I could, I could feel what I now know is the urge to push, but it wasn't, I wouldn't describe it actually as an urge because it was just this thing that was happening to me,
1: mm. not something
0: that I needed to do. Mm. Um, it was definitely, I don't know if that's what the um, ejection reflex is, but I just felt this thing was happening to me and I had to respond just by, almost just by enduring it, not, not by doing anything. Yeah, that's it. Mm. So I felt that sensation at the end of each surge and I can only have felt that maybe three or four times because looking back at my notes my pushing phase was four minutes so it was just it was how I remember it the baby was there you know um and the midwife was with us by that point she said okay I can see your baby's head and I've had all these visualizations of using the mirror that we bought to look at baby and there was no time for any of that you know i I just, we didn't have any of that with us even in that room. So it, it wasn't even a conscious thought process at that point. The baby was just coming and it was a lot faster than we anticipated. Um, so she said, yeah, baby's head is coming. She said quite often at these moments, baby can retreat back up, you know, just to to help your body prepare and to stretch. And she said, I don't think your baby's doing that. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't feel like she's going back up we didn't know she was a she at this point.
1: Were you Um, on all fours? Were you kneeling? What kind of position are you in at this point?
0: I was still standing over the bath. I mean, so my partner said by the time it got really intense and, you know, surges were back to back, he said he could tell something was happening when I started squatting involuntarily. Mm. So I was totally involuntarily squatting. Um, I I don't really remember that, to be honest, but I, I think I did squat down to some degree but I wasn't like fully squatting or on the floor I was still kind of leant over the bath with him behind me and the, the midwife to my side and she said okay the baby's the baby's head is there and then all of a sudden the baby did retreat slightly so she said okay she she is baby is going slightly back up but it was a matter of seconds and then and then fully crowning again And I don't remember pain from crowning. And that's always the thing that, you know, I think women are most scared of, or one of the things you're most scared of, you know, you can feel fear. And I certainly did, having not felt it the first time. I was fearful this time of what that would feel like. But, you know, it definitely wasn't the most difficult part. I think the most difficult part was the the intense back-to-back surges where you don't have a recovery. But the crowning and the baby moving down the birth canal, I just it was just intense and powerful. It was just just an absolutely amazing thing to feel and like you say on your podcast you know you say it's a rite of passage and I really feel like that is what it was for me I got to experience this thing that I will probably never experience again and I feel like I'm so grateful to have had that experience finally to just feel everything that birth is um and so yeah she she then just came out (laughs) I think I remember the midwife saying here are the shoulders. Here come the shoulders, and I was thinking, oh God, more. There's more, and um, but I was thinking it's 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 going to be over in a matter of seconds. So I just want to feel this. You know, it's going to be over, and she came out really fast. And the midwife said, um, "You need to you need to sit down on the ground because the cord's not very long, um, and I'm going to pass her through your legs to you." And so I kind of squatted fully down at that moment and um just felt this slippery baby in my arms and we had all these plans of my partner identifying her gender you know because we didn't um want to find out the sex of the baby in advance we just wanted it to be a, a natural surprise at the end and and it ended up that I was the one holding her and I got I got to look at her and I was so confused at how fast it all happened it had been so unexpected that I wasn't even sure I was looking or like identifying her. Right. I was just so confused. I was like, is it a girl? No, it is a girl. (laughs) I had to check a few times before I was like, sure, this was a girl. And um, we were just absolutely overjoyed to have a little girl and, you know, one of each with their little boy as well. And um, I sat down and people were, you know, wrapping her in towels, bringing, bringing towels to us to sit on and, I hadn't been aware of anything happening at this point but uh, people told me afterwards and actually I saw <laughs> for, with my own eyes that she'd done a, a big maconium poo all over the floor just as she came out a lot of poo everywhere it was on the walls I was covered in it actually um on the yeah, walls on the walls yeah poo on the walls in this space that hadn't even been you know set up as a breath space Love it. and um so we just sat down, like, looking at her. She was screaming her head off, actually. She made a, a lot of noise, <laughs> probably due to the speed she came out at. She was probably a bit overwhelmed with it as well. Yeah. But it was so positive. And um, I, I should say, actually, that I found out afterwards, because obviously my waters had never broken naturally before. So I found out afterwards she had been on call in her amniotic sac, but the midwife had actually broken that just before she came out and I I would be interested to learn why she did that and actually I would like to have a conversation with them just to ask is that a protocol thing when the second midwife isn't on the scene is it some kind of thing that they deem more safe
1: no not at all no so do you mean she broke it when she saw the head
0: I think she must have done I think she must have done because when she came out she wasn't in her bag but I'd been told later on that she had been fully in her bag before so I think and, and I think I mean, the other midwife did mention she'd, you know, the first one had broken it as she was coming out or before. I'm not sure exactly yeah. what moment they would do that.
1: Because it is normal that the sac breaks by itself when the head is born. Like mm-hmm. it is quite common that if it hasn't broken throughout labor, it will break at birth. Sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't, and that's when the baby comes out fully in cold. But um, I mean, I have never learned to do that, absolutely not. It's just usually does happen with the head and shoulders coming out that it naturally mm-hmm. pops. So um, that she would have done that, um, mm-hmm. That's a, that I don't I don't have an answer to why you would do
0: that. No, I asked about it after, and I can't, I'm trying to remember who I spoke to about it, it doesn't matter. But I think, you know, we ended up having to go to hospital afterwards, which I'll come on to briefly. But mm. um, I think I was speaking to someone who'd seen my notes and said, yeah, d- they ended up having to break the waters or, or deciding to break the waters as she was coming out or before just before oh. I I hadn't been aware of any of this at the time yeah. so I don't know I would quite like to have a conversation and just find out the information yeah. on that. Um, yeah. so yeah so that was four minutes the pushing phase and the second midwife actually turned up just a few minutes after the birth so she was there and there were two there and as soon as one of them asked me, where I wanted to birth the placenta I felt the placenta coming it was so fast it was almost like that question had triggered my body to release and I just felt this you know this presence of something there needing to come out and I said oh it's coming (laughs) and they're like okay sit in the toilet sit in the toilet luckily I was right next to the toilet obviously still holding our little girl who we called Maya by the way so we were holding Maya and someone placed one of the midwives just placed a little I think a little bowl underneath me on the toilet and literally within seconds this placenta came out I think it was eight minutes after the birth of Maya mm. the placenta came so my body was definitely working and you know I should never have distrusted it it was four minutes pushing eight minutes placenta it was doing its thing yeah amazing yeah. amazing I love mm-hmm. that so we then were helped, me and my partner were helped to get into bed, you know, and then and next to a room um, in this lovely big bed that we've got. And we made this little nest in the bed and just sat there looking at Maya. And it was that point, actually, that we decided to call her Maya, which hadn't been top of our list. Uh, it, just, it just felt right at the time. It's a bit of a blur after that, but the midwives... We're coming in if there'd been anything to change about that experience it would be just not to be checked as much as we were and I that, again that's the thing it's a hospital protocol thing the community midwife teams they, they work under protocols yeah. of the local hospital and they have to come and check you and baby at really regular intervals it felt like every 10 minutes it probably wasn't that frequent yeah. but yeah
1: it's about every 15 minutes according to protocol if so this is the difference between privately practicing midwives and and when you follow the NHS and the, and the policies of the hospital, they check the, you know, according to po- policy you should check the woman's uterus. So they check the fundus, the top of um, the belly and see that the womb is contracting every 15 minutes, you know, checking you and the baby. Um, during that first hour or at an hour you know checking obviously respirations for baby color tone um, potentially in your country too they listen to the heart rate of the baby and um, uh, taking your blood pressure all these things so they kind of bring hospital to home when it is yeah. when it is the home birth midwives connect to the hospital usually around the world this is how it looks whereas mm-hmm. if that would have been an independent midwife she probably would have just looked at you like mm-hmm. felt you with her hand and look at the baby and gone you're both fine I'm gonna leave you for an hour just being in the next door you know obviously yell out if you have a gush of blood or something but otherwise just just one check really that's usually yeah. I would say what an I mean the pandemic web does because we you can see holistically how a person is feeling but because we come from this medicalized society that also with litigation as a big thing right you need to be able to check boxes saying, I have checked every 15 minutes the, that you know the woman's contracted because maybe someone down the line didn't have a good eye and then a woman started bleeding and she didn't check in time. You know what I mean? That's where it yeah. comes from. Mm-hmm. But then everyone needs to do all these things and not see the individual woman. However, obviously, you can pipe up and say, I don't want this. And obviously, you can say in your birth plan, I decline this. If it's not indicated medically, I don't want this. So I want women to know that too. Obviously, even though if you have publicly funded midwives, you can still say to them, "I wish not to have the policies taken to my home. I want this kind of
0: care." Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not something that we'd considered in our birth plan, and I would definitely recommend you know people think about that. <laughs> you know, it's not just your labour; it's what's what happens postnatally. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much protocol around that, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so they did check Maya. You know, as frequent as that and they said I think it was the second or the third check they said her temperature was a bit higher than they're comfortable with it was 38 something so then they started checking more regularly and I was just thinking oh I really just want to be left alone (laughs) just us three you know um our doula was being such a support she was bringing us food and herbal teas and everything we needed she was taking photos as well which was a really nice thing um but you know, it did it it brought some worry in that, you know, Maya's observations weren't quite normal and actually, you know, we ha- we obviously hadn't dressed her in anything. She hadn't been cleaned, I didn't want her to be cleaned or anything. She she just had a towel round her and she was on me, obviously, like, you know, mostly skin to skin, just with a, a bit of a towel on her. And they were saying we would not expect a baby to have a temperature of thirty-eight when they don't have clothes or many layers on in this type of winter environment as well. You know, we don't actually live in a super warm house. Uh, And yeah, it was maybe four or five checks she had a higher temperature and they said, you know, we're getting to the stage where we're really going to recommend a hospital transfer because she could have an infection. And I think if I hadn't had all the infections I'd had, especially the bronchitis right at the end of labour, and if her temperature hadn't been, if it hadn't been high on a sustained basis, you know, with all the knowledge I had from Soren, the suspected sepsis he had in hospital, yeah, I learned so much from that but this time I thought I I kind of concluded this is a bit different because she could have picked something up from me. I don't know. I don't really have a lot of knowledge on how often that happens. I didn't have any research on it. I hadn't really done my homework on it. But I did think that's that's actually possible and I don't want to be the one to decline something where she actually does deteriorate mm-hmm. <laughs> because of something she's picked up from me and we just don't know. So at that mm-hmm. time when they were saying we recommend you take her to hospital it wasn't just her temperature with the last few checks they said her um respirations had gone up they were I think I think they expect them to be is it 40 to 60 a minute something like that Mm. and it is maybe I think there was a couple that were approaching the 80s and so there was a few kind of signs that she maybe wasn't well or um wasn't adjusting like they want a baby to adjust
1: how long after labour are we talking? And how how
0: frequent were these tests? Was this in the first hour after birth? Uh no. The ones so the, the highest temperatures were probably we went to hospital probably about seven pm. She was born at two thirty nine. Okay,
1: so, so it was, it was like time. four yeah. hours. Yeah, well, it that was a bit of time
0: then. Yeah, so it
1: wasn't yeah. just the transition time. It
0: was a few no, hours. yeah. Everything else was okay. You know, I was feeling fine I didn't have too much blood loss uh they recommended we get an ambulance we call an ambulance to hospital and uh, the first thing I thought of I mean obviously we didn't want any of this to happen but we did decide as a couple that it was for the best um and we had to kind of take their advice um but the one of the first things in my mind was the advice they would given me at the 36 week home birth check appointment where they'd said if either of you have to go to hospital after the birth, you can't travel together in the ambulance, which I just thought was absolutely barbaric. And I really, I, I then wrote that into my birth plan. I said I absolutely decline that advice, and I want to travel with my baby. Um, you know, if we have to go to hospital hours after birth, and you know, kangaroo care, I want them to be on me. Blah blah blah. Mm. So I did. I did say, you know, I'm not. I'm not having this. I I, I don't want to go with this. Um, you know, this recommendation. So I'm going to travel in the ambulance with with our daughter. And they just accepted that. So again, that's that's more advice that, you know, if you just tell them that's the way it is, that they actually do just have to listen to you. (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly. Because you are a sovereign being. You can make your own decision.
0: Yeah. So we travelled together and we went to hospital in Inverness and we ended up, I mean, it's a long story and we probably don't have time to go through it all now, but we ended up being in hospital for five days again yeah again (laughs) um you know but i she did have evidence of infection that i think Soren didn't have she had blood infection markers with some of the tests that they did the heel prick tests that Soren didn't have you know and it did show that she was fighting something her -hmm. temperature stayed elevated for i think it was two days Mm. and they started her on antibiotics which it was far from ideal because I didn't want to have another baby have to endure courses of antibiotics straight out from birth and, you know, have their microbiome be affected. And mm. But in this case, I think it probably was for the best. That's the conclusion we came to. Um, She did, you know, she did have more Marcus and Soren. And the, the part of this story that makes it far less traumatic than the first time around with Sorin was that they allowed her to be by my side and we were just able to stay in the postnatal ward together. She was, you know, she was on me for the whole of that week, even though she had this horrible little cannula in her little hand, Mm. giving her all the drugs. Um, And she had, you know, we were interrupted all the time with observations and checks and things, but she was literally on me the whole first week. Mm. And that just made such a world of difference. And so, again, I would say, like, if you can push back, if you're in that situation, if you can push back on, Your baby being physically separated and put in another room, then you know it's possible for them to give her the care she needs next to a mother. Yes, so hundred
1: percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, we got an important thing that you just shared. You know that mm -hmm. advocate for what you want and decline separation. Now, obviously, if they need to be like ventilated and like there's different, you know, obviously situations where, but you can. We need to start not separating mother and baby we need to start putting mother and babies together in the same room on the same ward even when it's high intensive care
0: mm-hmm. absolutely yeah yeah i totally agree Yeah. so yeah that was our story wow what a beautiful
1: what a beautiful birth that took you through so many elements of the first where you got to meet yourself in a Different mindset and headspace, and also choose different things for yourself. What is I mean, the
0: biggest it, takeaway for you? Oh, you know, I've got so many takeaways. I mean, I, we've we've gone through them from my first experience, but I think with this one, expect the most intense sensations of your life. You know, like I said, I don't think some of the moments in my labor at the most intense points weren't necessarily the sensations of pain that I had expected before, but it was the most intense physical sensations I've ever felt. and it took it did take some mind control to to endure those and to get through them to the other side. But I think it's we talked about meditation and mindfulness and visualization during pregnancy. and I think using those moments of you know internal work essentially to work on your confidence and your trust in yourself to endure, The sensations that you don't you don't necessarily know what they're going to feel like unless you've been through labor before so it's trusting that whatever they do feel like you can endure those and you can you can move through them Mm. um you know and like my experience from long distance running I think you know in in long distance races I used to say to myself when it got really really tough I used to say to myself okay here, here you are you know this is the toughest time this is the toughest um moment in the race I've been waiting for you and I can get through this you know it's almost like welcoming yeah that time of your life and of that experience and so labour is the same I think it's you know it's welcoming those sensations as something that you have every right to experience and that you're going to remember for the rest of your life <laughs> you know I'm going to it was tough but I'm going to also treasure those moments for the rest of my life as something that I have experienced you know.
1: I love also the wisdom that I feel is from your story that that you know I keep on repeating as well like every labour and birth would look different and to not like what you mentioned like with your first birth not to have any expectations Mm -hmm. and to accept each moment as it comes without needing it to be different or needing it needing to know when it's going to end or like seeking outside of yourself for control or reassurance that you okay it's only this long left and i mean i guess that's a lot of times when women do request for example vaginal examinations it's because they want to oh i'm here you know because it's somehow they believe that well then i know where i'm at and how far along i am but that's actually not true and it will never be true in labor like you know, often women will say labor to me, like, you know, how far, like, how long do I have left? Mm -hmm. And I'll just be like, you know, you're doing it and you're, it's the perfect time. And I don't know. We don't know. We won't won't know. And even as you start bearing down, even as you start the pushing stage, you know, where you actually bring your baby outside, that can be anywhere from five minutes to five hours. You Mm -hmm. know, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. And it is the biggest thing to overcome that Deep desire to know and to control and um to be in full acceptance, like that is truly like surrender. We keep on talking about it in labor, like in birth, mm-hmm. like the ultimate surrender, and it truly is on all levels.
0: Yeah, totally. And surrender is actually—it's a really hard thing to do in practice. When, like you say, we're so used to controlling every element of our lives, and we think, oh yeah, I can do that in labor in theory, you know. But actually, yeah, we need to practice that, don't we?
1: Yeah, and labor and birth is our biggest teacher for it as well which again you know so much teaches you what you need to know as a mother right yeah that you can't control things there either and the sleepless nights and just being on the schedule of your baby which is constantly changing it can be so hard especially the first time around to Mm -hmm. fully surrender yourself to that motherhood Mm -hmm. yeah not knowing being, being at the mercy of your babies waking up sleeping wanting to feed all of it
0: Yeah and actually I had another pearl of wisdom which was more about the postpartum Mm -hmm. phase because I think it's something I mean obviously this is a birth podcast but I think um, the postpartum you know we often don't plan enough for that (laughs) as we do for birth Mm -hmm. Um, but I think my advice would just be to you know enjoy your baby and take mindful moments of enjoying your baby because you know I I'm so guilty of getting wrapped up in anxieties, especially the first time around with my son of, you know, how long has he been sleeping for? What's the nap gap? You know, when does he need to sleep again? And what, you know, what X, Y, Z things do I need to do when he's sleeping? And just getting caught up in the everyday practical um, you know, tasks of motherhood and second guessing what he needs and when. And, you know, just taking those moments to not get caught up with the the schedule of life <laughs> and to look at you know look at signs of his first smile and just enjoy him <laughs> and or her and I think it's so important and I actually read that advice um, in a book recently and I've been really trying to live it every day with my daughter and I feel like it's it's definitely making a difference in terms of okay yeah she's not slept for three hours and maybe a newborn of her age should have done in this time but you know, forget the shoulds. <laughs> we could have had like three amazing moments together that we wouldn't have had if I'd been caught up and worrying about her schedule. So, yeah. yeah, just enjoy your baby.
1: Yes, and forget about schedules because they don't have any, and they keep on changing as well. You you know, you might think one week you got a routine down, and then that totally flips its head the week mm-hmm. after that. And I think, yeah bring the surrender into early motherhood and just to motherhood, but bringing early surrender or surrender into those early weeks and days will help because just the beingness is the most important thing. Just reading the cues of your baby and just being with your baby and not thinking mm-hmm. that you need to, yeah. Just being with your baby will cue you on to what your baby needs. Is it feeding? Yeah. Is it sleeping? Is it cuddling? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm yeah totally
1: yeah well oh, thank you so much for coming and sharing your birth story on the podcast It's been so lovely to to hear your birth story and to to hear your redemptive
0: mm-hmm.
1: healing birth you know your body always knew what to do
0: yeah thank you Anna it feels like full circle with you which is really nice given you were involved in our you know our processing of the first labor so it feels so good to share it with you and to talk through it as well because um yeah I think it's a lovely thing for mothers to do is just to recount their experience and it it helps us to remember it and and keep it really precious
1: thank you for listening if you love this podcast then please consider sharing it leave a review or make a contribution on our patreon page and if you want to connect on social media then find the podcast on instagram as the natural birth podcast thank you for listening